Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host and the podfather of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Hap, hap, happy new year. I hope you enjoyed time off with friends, family. I hope that time off was rejuvenating for you. I wish you the best for 2024. And I got even more good wishes coming up. I'm glad you're with us. I'd be thrown into methemoglobinemia if you shared with me the bloody idea that you missed this week's show. Here's our associate producer, Kate, to introduce our first show of 2024. Happy New Year, everyone. This first week of 2024, we have our esteemed contributors, 2024 Outlooks. Amy Sampleboard and Jean Takagi kick off the new year with what they'll be keeping eyes on this year. They delve into artificial intelligence, the presidential election, donor-advised funds, workers' rights, and more. Amy is our technology contributor and CEO of N10. Jean is our legal contributor and principal attorney at NEO, the nonprofit and exempt organizations law group. On Tony's Take Two. Simple good wishes. We're sponsored by DonorBox. Outdated donation forms blocking your supporters' generosity? DonorBox. Fast, flexible, and friendly fundraising forms for your nonprofit. DonorBox.org. Here is our esteemed contributors' 2024 outlooks. It's always a genuine pleasure to welcome. Amy or Jean back to the show. It's a it's exponentially larger pleasure. It's not it's not just double the pleasure to have both of them. It's 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 more like logarithmic, logarithmically greater pleasure. You know how steep the logarithmic curve goes. That's how much pleasure it is to have both of them on the show for our 2024 outlook. Amy Sample Ward is the CEO of N10 and our technology contributor. They were awarded a 2023 Bosch Foundation Fellowship. So we got to see that's that's old news now. What's going to happen in 2024? That's uh, has been. Uh, and their most recent co-authored book is The Tech That Comes Next about equity and inclusiveness in technology development. They're at amysampleward.org and at amyrsward. Jean Takagi is our legal contributor and managing attorney of NEO, the nonprofit and exempt organization's law group in San Francisco. He edits the wildly popular nonprofitlawblog.com, and he's a part-time lecturer at Columbia University. The firm is at neolawgroup.com, and he's at GTAC. Amy and Jean. Happy New Year to each of you, individually and collectively. Thanks so much. It's so good to see you in the new year. Happy 2024. I'm glad we can continue or create a tradition of doing this outlook together. And also, as I was listening to you do the intro and welcome us, thinking about how interconnected uh, the conversations of law and technology have become uh, really 
maybe we will just become the joint contributors <laughs> for technology and their legal issues. <laughs> All right. And that would be my pleasure as well. It's always great to be talking with Amy and with you, Tony. So thanks for having us on. Uh, a pleasure. I love uh, I love our three-way conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, oh, Gene, I'm going to start with you. Uh, there are a number of things that you've identified that you've uh, got your eye on for 2024. Um, I feel like, you know, it was such a huge year for labor gains. I mean, through the, I don't know, past 15, 20 years, maybe it's even a little longer. You know, we've seen labor unions and labor uh, power sort of, you know, declining. But 2023 was a very big year for labor. There was the very highly, the highly public um auto workers strike and and which ended in success with many manufacturers uh of course there was the hollywood strikes the writers guild and then the actors joined and those uh ended in success you've got your eye on on even more labor uh labor and union issues for 2024 gene yeah, and I think you captured it really well. It had been lying a little bit dormant for several years. And then in 2023, um, this was the count that I saw from Cornell's Labor Action Tracker, but 354 strikes in 2023 as of October 31st. So they haven't updated that yet, but involving about uh, half a million workers. Um, and you listed a bunch of the really well-known ones. I'll just throw in UPS. For nonprofits, Kaiser Permanente, um, uh, uh, and you know, sixty percent of the strikes. Just so we don't think this is all large uh, institutions, sixty percent of the strikes were with one hundred or fewer workers, employers with one hundred or fewer mm. workers. So um, yes, the workers' movement um, is alive and, and well, and I think it's going to continue to gain momentum. There's issues too around uh, gig workers, and that that was uh, and that was some that was part of an issue. Part of the issue, I think, around uh, the writers' strike, especially was like free bringing freelancers in. Uh, you're you're concerned. You're you're looking at gig work too. Yeah, you know, I I think because so many employers uh, through COVID had been dealing with remote workers and. A lot of younger workers, um, Gen Z in particular, wanting to look at more alternative work re relationships. Um, there has been this move towards more gig working in it, the gig economies. You know, I think that was coined a few years ago. And there are some trips uh, that nonprofits need to avoid in, in that because there are increasing rules and penalties regarding improper classification of what should be employees and saying that they're independent contractors and therefore the hiring body doesn't have to sort of pay payroll taxes or worry about any of those things, benefits and wage and hour laws and overtime, sick pay, all of those things. But if you get the classification wrong, the penalties can be steep and smaller nonprofits especially may not have been paying as much attention to that as they should. And I think that's gonna start to become very relevant in this new year. Yeah, it's, it's, it's enticing to misclassify right because it's so much easier to have a 1099 person working for you than to have an employee there's so so many fewer regulations around 
I don't know. Are there any? I guess. Well, you have to report. You have to re- if they guess if they make more than like six hundred dollars a year, you have to report that uh, uh, for your ten ninety nine workers. But the, the the difference between having an employee and a and a, a contractor are enormous. Yeah, especially in cost. I, I think when organizations are thinking, well, I don't have to contribute. You know, the payroll taxes, the employer portion is not contributed. I don't have to worry about withholding it or figuring out all of the payroll deductions and all of that. I don't have to pay benefits. I don't have to worry about sick benefits. I don't have to worry about workers' comp. So there's a tremendous incentive to classify individuals as independent contractors, but that might not be fair or equitable, and that might not be consistent with the law. So really, organizations have to pay attention to this. Okay. Well, maybe we'll we'll, let's come back to some of the, like, I know that we don't, let's not, we won't go into the weeds on the on the test whether someone is a contractor or an employee, but but we'll we'll come back to that, Gene, because just maybe we'll just hit some of the highlights of what distinguishes the two. Um, Amy, you know, technology is obviously pervasive uh, throughout our lives. Uh, <laughs> N10 uh, has heard rumors to that effect. <laughs> so, you know, um, how, how does how does how does gig work? Uh, well, how is gig work impacted these, by 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 tech issues? Yeah, there's so many, you know, pieces that come off of this related to technology, and I wanted to name the first piece that Jean brought up around strikes and kind of labor issues in general. Um, a reminder that those strikes, I think, are felt and very powerful in person, but as we saw, whether it's something really prominent like the writer's strike um, or or auto workers, but also local, you know, here in Portland, we had a, a teachers strike, the teachers union for Portland Public Schools for strike in its history and that lasted a month. Um, technology is a really powerful organizing tool in those um, instances. Um, the the unions themselves, but also all of the folks who are striking. We saw especially so with the writer's strike, folks turning to technology where maybe they themselves weren't a member to go on the picket line, but they wanted to support it. And so they were, you know, selling arts and crafts and things that they had made with the proceeds going to support, you know, getting lunch for everybody on the picket line that day or whatever. So um, I think with the like kind of social media online organizing hat, lots that that is available for organizers trying to mobilize workers for for those types of instances but on the other side on the on the gig work side technology related roles are often the things we see at N10 most likely put into like a contractor instead of an employee because those are jobs that often are folks you know maybe doing graphic design um or or video editing as something they only want to do that and so they take on lots of clients but then, you know, there's some organizations where that is a full-time job. And how are you setting up, um, as Jean said, an unequitable relationship around that allocation and investment? Um, even even in terms of, uh, you know, supplying technology, right? Um, you know, if, if someone is an employee, then you're obligated to provide them with the technology to do their job. 
versus well unfortunately but, you're not obligated to provide them with the technology to oh, do their job well, there's organizations you're morally who you're use, morally obligated right, moral sure, morally obligated. but you know there's plenty of organizations and this is yeah. even part of the equity guide for nonprofit technology of organizations who have a bring your own device policy where they say you know part of working here is you have to supply your own equipment and how inequitable that is when you have oh you know, staff making all different salaries and then yeah, able yeah. to bring all different, you know, oh, that, levels okay. of sophisticated tools. And okay, then wait, you wait. add the layer of the gig kind of work on top of that, where it's kind of exacerbating how inequitable it is to be able to have supplied your own equipment to then do that work. The bring your own device. This, this is interesting. Okay. I always thought bring your own device policies were if you, if you are using your own, if you are using your own device for company work, then it has to have certain safeguards, protections, or you know, wh whatever. But you're you're saying there are there are nonprofits that require you to bring your own device. Oh, yes, I okay. I didn't know where we I wish aware that, that was I not the case, but it is something um, that we see, especially um, right, organizations not. where yeah. they say, you know you have to have a smartphone and you need to use it in order to post on social media or you need to use it as your phone but you know we'll give you the the zoom phone number or whatever okay all right that i was not aware of that that part of it i like i said which is I, why we are here with gene because then you connect right, into folks are doing all of their work on a device that they own yeah. that is now intermixed with, you know, their own internet usage, their own whatever else, but they're accessing the database every day from that device, right? So the idea of um, security, safety, data stewardship, protection, everything gets gets frightfully muddled um, when, when you are requiring staff use their own devices, not just about it being off-premise and working from home, but the issue is that it is their personal device that, that they are keeping no matter what. Yeah. And, and and by the way, they're paying for it. Yes. They're paying for the service and, and right. paid for the device itself. Gene, what, what about the, the legal side of, uh, of these these protections, safeguards being being absent that uh, that Amy's talking about? Yeah. So I'm, I think there are occasions where you can run into trouble with that. Um, so if you're not providing, I think, adequate protection for the technology that's being brought in by individuals as an employee, well, then the employer could be responsible for the breaches. So um, mm. Amy, you know, referred to sort of data security issues, but you can imagine that every individual with their smartphone will not know how to secure the data that they're accessing on that phone unless somebody from IT, if the nonprofit is lucky enough to have an IT department or somebody is able to come in and safeguard them. So it's kind of, you can have that policy, but use at your own risk because there are a lot more compromises that can get you into legal trouble if you're letting every individual, including those with very little technology background to just bring their own devices and, and access everything, including possibly some very private information that the organization may have. So yeah, it's it's going to be a continuing challenge for sure. And I mean, even what, as Gene said, you know, um, the organization could say you're bringing your own 
you have to provide your own laptops, but we pu- we pay for, you know, the security app, McAfee or whatever else, you know, to, to be on there or whatever it might be. You likely don't have a technology staff person who's skilled and ready to provide training to 20 different smartphone models and five different laptop models running, you know, four different operating systems. So the idea that, um, yes, bring your own device, but we'll still train you, we'll still ensure it's safe. That's just not, it's just not possible. You know, we can't expect that even an IT team would have the knowledge to support all of those many different devices and, and situations. It's time for a break. Open up new cashless in-person donation opportunities with DonorBox Live Kiosk, the smart way to accept cashless donations anywhere, anytime. Picture this. A cash-free, on-site giving solution that effortlessly collects donations from credit cards, debit cards, and digital wallets. No team member required. Plus, your donation data is automatically synced with your DonorBox account. No manual data entry or errors. Make giving a breeze and focus on what matters, your cause. Try DonorBox Live Kiosk and revolutionize the way you collect donations in 2024. Visit DonorBox.org to learn more. Now back to our esteemed contributors, 2024 Outlooks. What's a minimum set of protections that that a device ought to have if it, if it is the, someone's personal device. I don't think there's a standard, Tony, but you that can- was for, That was for either of you. Uh, I don't know. Like, I mean, malware, uh, password, uh, two-factor authentication, help me I here. Think, yeah, I think all of those are highly recommended, but um, is it enough? Um, and it depends upon what type of data they're allowed to access on on their on their personal devices. So if they're you know accessing sort of personal health information of individuals, that's not nearly enough. Um, and you know in those cases, allowing individuals to use their own devices probably just strongly um, sh- it shouldn't happen. Um, mm. So, uh, but if if the data that they're accessing is just non-sensitive stuff, and they're doing sort of you know, their own research work and they're only sharing their data and only with one individual, uh, you know, within the central organization that's exchanging emails, maybe that's not so important. So if if the data or the information emails were compromised, it would not result in any harm to the organization. Um, So again, really what's reasonable under the circumstances, we could sort of go through different state laws, um, but I, I think using really common sense on what type of information are you allowing that person to access and what type of reasonable safeguards are on that. And I think the question should always be asked, and Amy's probably suggesting, you know, should always demand that the organization really strongly consider supplying the technology for everybody to use so you can control it. It is standardized and you don't have all of these issues. Um, I also think just to add, I agree with everything that Jean said and the suggestions that you made, Tony, I'd also just for like the practical part of the conversation. Yes. Security tools, making sure two factor is on that sort of thing, but also thinking about paying for a 
secure VPN that can be used both on a mobile phone and on a laptop so that staff are at least, you know, logging in through a VPN and not a open public Wi-Fi network somewhere or something like that. I want to go back to the uh, the, the first issue that, that Jean talked about, uh, the, the strike, you know, that, that writer strike, Amy, so many of the issues around their frustration and their strike were, were artificial intelligence. Right. Use of use of artificial intelligence to create scripts, create characters. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you we, we could see video of artificial characters saying artificial uh, dialogue that that no human was was involved in. I mean, th those. Well, those and were, I think, those, you those know, there's multiple layers here, I think, yeah. because of so many of the um, experiences and exposure folks had in 2023 to chat GPT, a lot of what kind of I think the general public was thinking about as far as AI and, and the writer's strike was was text, right? Was like having having a, a tool write the script instead of the writer's room. And that's an important part of the conversation for sure. But I wanna make sure folks understand that wasn't the only piece. And these are implications for our work in the sector as well. And the other piece of that is, you know, our um, supporting roles, our background actors, even having their likeness taken on one day in one photo and now the AI is using that to create the visual side as well. Um, so we have seen already um, folks saying in the nonprofit sector, you know, using people, uh, photos of real clients, maybe that feels problematic um, for your organization. And so instead of doing that, you know, and all the hard like, getting the consent from this family to take their photo and put them in the annual report. Um, instead, let's use AI and let's generate a family that looks like the people we serve, but is fake people. Um, there, there's a lot to talk about <laughs> around that, right? And um, there's both the like moral and ethics and, and how do we feel about this, but also the very practical how did that tool learn what a family that needs to use a food pantry looks like? Um, how how was that tool trained on what this means? Um, and is that something we're supporting too? Well, let, let, let's flesh it out a bit. Uh, we, you know, back a few months ago, there was a great conversation with uh, your co-author, uh, Afua Bruce and uh, George Weiner and Alison Fine and Beth Cantor that, that, that I hosted um so and some of that came out but you know like how are these tools um uh, trained right i mean they're trained with the with the biases that exist throughout the internet and there's a majority population there's a pop there are populations with more exposure and power online than than others uh you know greater influence say yeah, so I just more. read a report um, earlier this morning, actually, that research was done to verify that some of these, um, you know, visual uh, generative AI tools have been trained using explicit photos of children that were found on the Internet. What, wh who are we? What is happening um, when yeah. we are using these tools, right? But again, 
the the largest tools have been trained on the largest data sets, which means the open web. Um, and we can certainly talk about the long history of legal implications around content on the internet. Um, and I will go turn the fire on, get some tea going, and Jean can just talk uh, for a long history of this. But you know, I think um, really understanding what it means to use a tool that's just kind of trained on the whole internet versus really being interested as a sector in saying, we'd like to maybe use some of these um, opportunities around generating content, generating text, generating video or audio or, or images, but we want it to be built with us. We want it to be built from content and data that you know we support, and then we will use it versus feeling like you have to kind of go use these tools that are already out there. Gene, anything more you want to say on on this before we we touch on some others? Um, so much, Tony. <laughs> well, go ahead. Well, but, well, well, it's not short um, form. Yeah, I mean, AI creates just a number of different issues, right? And and that's going to impact worker rights as well, right? I think a lot of people are worried that AI will replace workers in different industries. So the writers were one. You know, the actors are also interested in how AI can replace all of them. If you saw Harrison Ford looking young again in the latest Indiana Jones episode, you see how much better AI is getting at doing stuff like that. Um, the stories, you know, if you throw it into to, to chat GPT or an, another AI program and you ask them to develop a certain story with a certain formula and it will gather information and create that story. And sometimes they could be pretty good, but are they infringing on the creations of others to get that story? Like how much of it are they taking? Um, that's an issue. And then kind of, um, I don't know if we're going to go back to AI later again, but just sort of AI and whether if we gather sources from a limited pool of data, and even if that pool is vast, well, we're seeing AI contracts now between specific news agencies and an AI like a company. Now, is the AI going to be based on any sort of um, sort of edited version? of what the news is um, that could be polarized sort of politically. Um, are we going to see more of that? And are people going to automatically trust something because it's coming from AI? Are they going to approach it with the, the skepticism that they should approach or will, it with? Will, will, will we even know? We won't know. Yeah. There's, there's a very good likelihood we won't even know the source is artificial. Yeah. I mean, I think we see it all the time now politically. And I think we're worried about that for this coming election is like, are the candidates actually saying what they're saying on the video? Or are, is this just AI and somebody else has put you know, words into their mouths? Um, so that can also affect organizations, right? What are organizations saying? Are those true statements from those organizations? It looks like them. Is it them? Is it? And Gene, are, this is so much of kind of crossing the bridge over to what Tony and I talked about a few weeks ago around mis and disinformation, where your organization didn't necessarily have anything to do with it, but your organization is being used to kind of falsely validify some sort of mis or disinformation that that is advancing someone else's agenda. And, you know, what can you do as the organization? You can say on your website, 
we only issue statements in this way, or we only provide, you know, all of our data is already public. So if you're seeing something else, it's clearly not ours or, you know, whatever kind of proactive statement, because when folks are looking to uh, kind of make it seem as if their claims are valid, nonprofits are often the ones that are used to, to, to do that work because we are more trusted than maybe a political agency um, or, or even a government agency. And that means we need to we need to be thoughtful that our our content and our um, logo, even, you know, all of these things could be used without us even knowing it. Amy, when you say validify, I think you mean validate. Yes, sorry. I'm also trying to talk over um, my daughter and the dog, which I can hear outside the door. So sometimes I'm talking while compromising, also- I see, yes. Compromising your grammar. I understand. There was yes. a little portmanteau between- valid Yeah, exactly. Validate and uh, solidify. V validify. All right. No, just picking on you. Um, all right. Uh, what, what, are you, what are you hearing- from nonprofits, folks in nonprofits uh, around artificial intelligence concerns. Uh, keep it. You know, us, I want to go back to, to something Jean said a minute ago because the nonprofit sector, just like so, so many other industries, has has unfortunately been listening to and maybe giving too much credence to the fear mongering that AI is here to replace all of our jobs. And we hear from so many nonprofit organizations, really of all different missions, you know, where they're saying, oh, my gosh, like, is my organization not going to need me anymore? Am I going to not have a job? And it's difficult for me to imagine jobs in nonprofit organizations that AI is adequate to replace today. <laughs> so I think that there could be in the coming years opportunities to um, use some forms of AI technologies to make your job more effective or your time more efficient. I don't see program teams being replaced. I don't see communication teams or fundraising teams being replaced. Um, these tools only work with people putting in great prompts, you know, really sifting through and understanding the content that came back. So, People are still required. These, you know, there's not like a robot showing up to work and sitting down at the desk instead of you. I'm still a little more skeptical about that. Um, and maybe because I watched Instagram a little too much over the break, the holiday break. Um, and I saw a Japanese robot hotel where you have dinosaur robots who are the front desk. Uh, but yeah, um, in the legal field, I think there's real real concern that AI could replace a lot of legal assistance and paralegals for researching. Um, so, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but there will be kind of this transition period where we're going to have to figure out like what happens with workers who might have their jobs changed or modified or even um, cut out um, due to technology replacing them and making other things more efficient. So. Um, it, it's going to be an ongoing challenge, not just for 2024, but increasingly over the, the next several years. And I'm not exactly sure if we know what to expect. Um, AI's growth just yeah. last year was, I think, unexpectedly fast. The, the chat G, GPT like um, application um, participation was just so, so quick. Um, and if that ex exponentially you know, gets larger and larger, as you suggested, Tony, you know, that's 
totally game changing in two or three years. Yeah, I want to be clear. I, I don't disagree with what Gene's saying. I, but I think it's very different to think our organizations will be in the position to rethink staffing and roles and resources and tools um, than it is, okay, well, three of you, are, we just don't even need you. Or, you know, this team is now a robot. I think it's really about evolving as a sector, as people, as society, um, you know, we didn't necessarily need to still have once there were phones and computers everywhere, you know, a physical front desk person in the same way for many organizations. That's not to say they were like, okay, well, no one answers phones now, but they had to change how that worked. Maybe it wasn't one person, it was everybody or whatever. So I think we will definitely see a change. Totally agree. We don't know what all of it will be and what the implications of it are, but I, I just don't want folks to feel like every article that says AI is here to end humanity and replace all jobs and like nothing is, you know, th like that level of, uh, of fear mongering isn't real. Those folks also don't know what's coming and, and, and what the changes will be, but we will still be in a position to make that that choice for our organizations. And I don't want folks kind of replacing their ability to make choices in their organization with fear and just saying, well, there's no choice to make because, you know, I'm too scared. Right. We also need to make sure that we're conscious about our use of, of AI. You know, Gene, you said, well, it may not be a bad thing that maybe associates or, you know, our researchers are replaced or, or uh, supplemented in part, but, you know, we, we did see, in the legal side, there was a, a horrific example of uh, an AI generated uh, with motion and, and cited cases that didn't exist. It, it made up the citations. I mean, including down to which volume of which reporter it was in. It was all fictitious, as well as the claims that that were uh, alleged to be supported by those cases. That, that, that those cases stood for. You know, and and that attorney ended up having to deeply apologize. And you know, but that's a that's a, that's a gross malfeasance. You know, you, he, th that person, I think it was a guy, uh, you know, he, he signed his name to, to a motion that, that was fraudulent. Um, and there was the case of, you know, I'm picking out, I, I realize I'm picking out a couple of examples out of the millions of, hundreds of millions of uses probably of AI by now, but there was the, the college that, that it was, I think it was even an, an, an equity officer at a college released a statement after a shooting that was AI generated and it, and it even the cap the the footnote even said generated by AI and it was it was it was it was heartlessly and coldly written because it was artificially generated and I think in that case it was a woman you know and she sent it out under her email and she had to deeply apologize and she was an equity officer uh, you know so well and I right. think that these I mean sure we could say oh these are cherry-picked negative examples and there's all these other ones it's not about it being negative or not it's about it proving that this is why we need tools that we have built for our purposes from data sets that we do trust or have contributed to or made with purpose and that the algorithm that word i mean it gets used all the time the algorithm just means the rules like the order of operations for the tool right and that we've told it you can't make it up. It has to be from one of these existing, you know, data sets or whatever. So really, um, 
from start to finish, I think it's important that we as a sector are able to build and contribute to and then use tools from our sector so that we are not in this way, you know, creating uh, or, or contributing to or using content like these examples. And that's not to say those are the only examples that exist, but they are proving really why it's important that we have tools for ourselves. It's time for Tony's Take Two. Happy 2024. Thank you, Kate. The new year, the new year. I I hope that you enjoyed uh, time off, celebrating, uh, relaxing some, indulging, right? That's, that's uh, what all the holidays uh, are, are for. And as we look forward, I encourage you to not feel like 2023, in case it was less than you wanted, is going to define your 2024. Our past doesn't define our future. Hey, if 2023 was outstanding for you, outstanding. We got to hit it all again, starting anew, though. And if it was less than you wanted uh, 2023 to be, it doesn't define your 2024. It's a new year, clean slate, start fresh. You owe that to yourself. You owe that to your nonprofit. So personally and professionally. I'm hoping that in the midst of our enormously contentious presidential election year, which goes all year, it's it's not just the election in November. We're it's we're deep into it already, and we're only going to get deeper. So really, it pervades the entire year. I hope we can all stay civil, stay professional, stay calm. There's a lot out there impacting all our donors. You know, the, this presidential election throughout the year impacts people's moods emotions and that influences people's giving throughout the year so i hope you and folks you work with folks you count on will all remain civil calm through uh what i think is going to be a challenging year for uh for the country Lots of good wishes. That is Tony's take two. Kate? It is the new year and it's new you and it's gonna be new episodes in the Tony Marnetti nonprofit radio and I'm so excited for it. Yes, indeed. New stuff coming up. Thanks, Kate. We've got Buku, but loads more time. So let's go back to our esteemed contributors 2024 outlooks with Amy Sample Ward and Jean Takagi. I think a lot of this is solvable too, um, on sort of on the local level, Tony. I mean, you can't just use like uh, AI that uses the entire internet as if the entire internet is true and then rely on that, right? But we can get companies that focus on AI that is just looking at sort of, you know, statutory law, for example. So it's only picking from 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 the statute or you know published court cases from from 
the, the governmental sources. So we can devise those things. And I know they are being devised right now and perfected, but we are in the very, very early stages, yeah. right? So that, well, that again goes to the conscious use. Yeah. The, the conscious creation, you're talking about the creation and the use of what could be an enormously valuable tool uh, or uh, an enormously destructive tool and hurtful and, and dividing. And right. Can I just use that? Notice how I put more adjectives on the negative than the positive. <laughs> oh, I'm always revealing my bias, my 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 deep cynicism and concern about AI. But I, I try to do, I try to be neutral, and then I pile six six negative negative adjectives after one, you know, weak uh, could be okay adjective. All right, I'm sorry, Gene. If if I could just sort of add on to your negative credentials, just if you've got flawed input, you're going to get flawed output, right? Yeah. Um, and so to the extent that you consider systemic racism, flawed input, like our existing sources of data and information and news and laws are, you know, filled with systemic racism uh, built into it, that's going to be reflected by AI. And that needs to be solved, too. Good long, long discussion on uh, artificial intelligence because it is so important. And 2024 will certainly not be the last year that we'll be, we'll be, uh, we'll be talking about it. Um, Gene, you have some uh, focus on donor advised funds. You think we're going to see some more regulation around those this year, or uh, if, if you know, it's coming? So, to back up a step, donor advised funds sort of became law a little bit more than 15 years ago, where they're actually recognized in statutory law that said, this is a fund that qualifies as a donor advised fund, and then it has to follow certain rules. Um, and that that just sort of came up about 15 plus years ago. And regulations, which are um, executive branch sort of laws, right? They are not developed by a legislative body like Congress federally, but they are the administrative agencies that come up with laws to implement the statutory laws. Well, usually after laws are passed on the statute, you expect regulations to follow close behind so you can interpret the statute and figure out how to implement it. Well, after donor advised fund laws came out in the statute, it's taken more than 15 years to get these proposed regulations that just came out at the end of last year. Um, so these are really late, but they've come out, proposed rules came out last year with respect to one section of the code that deals with donor advised funds, and there are more. But I expect more proposed regulations to come out and a lot of comments to come out from stakeholders who are interested in donor advised funds, which is a very, you know, a very hot area uh, of charity growth. Some would say the fastest growing, you know, section of, of charitable organizations are donor advised funds and sponsoring organizations. Um, and a lot of criticism that has followed, uh, you know, from people saying, well, this is just warehousing wealth because there's no minimum distribution requirement and all of that. So some of the regulations or, or the, the absence of regulations dealing with things like a minimum distribution requirement, like private foundations must give away 5% of basically their, their investment sort, sort of uh, uh, each year. Well, donor advised funds don't have that. So theoretically, if a billionaire put $100 million in a donor advised fund, it could stay there in perpetuity and they would have already received a deduction for the 100 million, right? So um, that is one criticism out that's out there. There are plenty of 
pros to donor advised funds too. So I, I won't get into the DAF controversy in total, other than to say that there it, it's more complicated than people make it to be. But with that, um, the regulators, the IRS and Treasury, probably don't feel like they have the authority to do something like a minimum distribution requirement. They, they, they'll go back and say, well, no, that's Congress's job to determine whether that's the case. But as the administrative agency, we're going to implement rules. And one of the rules that I'm most concerned about for, for smaller public charities is whether it's going to affect their ability to qualify as a public charity. So public charities usually have to pass a public support test. So very, very simply, one third of their you know, total income must be from broad public sources, typically small sources, right? So the, the one third public support test, people know it as, and it's way more nuanced than that, but let's just start, start from there. Well, if you receive a big donation from a private foundation, it can tip somebody from meeting that one third support test and falling into private foundation status, which for a small organization could kill it because it may mean that no other private foundation will ever give to that organization as another private foundation. They only give gifts to public charities. Um, so if that were to happen, tipping into private foundation status, that would be terrible. Right now, 100% of donor advised fund grants that come to a public charity are considered public support. So it's all good money for the public support test. Okay. But if there's a limit imposed, if it's treated as a don the same as a grant from a private foundation, it's capped at only providing up to 2% of the public support for reaching that one third mark. So that would be a huge, huge difference, right? So for public charities that get a lot of support from a donor advised fund, including like from a Fidelity donor advised from a Vanguard, a Schwab, mm -hmm. that could be something that makes a huge difference. So it's sort of pay attention to that um, because um, the IRS provided some guidance and asked for comments a few years back suggesting that that was the way they were going to go. This is going to say, well, for public support test purposes, let's treat a donor advised fund grant like a private foundation grant. Gene, if somebody was going to, let me just ask a quick, quick follow-up, Aim. Um, if somebody was going to Google that to, to look for, uh, so that they could track it, maybe with alerts or something, what, what would, what would you, what would you be searching for? But, public support test, donor advised fund, or what? That I mean, that would do it. What I would um, tell people to do instead is there the IRS exempt organizations group. So the exempt organizations of IRS has a newsletter that comes out like once a month. Subscribe to that and it'll, it'll give you an alert. Or if I, if I shamelessly self-promote the nonprofit law blog, look at it. And you'll see if there's a change in the law that comes down like that, I'll certainly write about something that big. Well, and Gene, is, I just want to clarify my understanding. That is her contribution. It's not because, you know, like a Fidelity or a Vanguard, there could be many DAF account owners who make a distribution to the same organization but they do it anonymously. It comes to the organization as like, oh, we don't get to know who contributed, but here's our like check from Fidelity, right? So it would be each check, it wouldn't be cumulative, is capped at 2% qualifying. Is that right? 
we don't know because the proposed rules haven't even come out yet. But the gotcha. fear is the fear is it's all treated as one, right? One organization. Exactly. So right. Fidelity sponsors thousands or maybe tens of thousands of, of accounts and vastly different donors. And if multiple donors from one organization recommend gifts to your public charity, my my fear is that it will be cumulatively treated as just coming from Fidelity one or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Right. And that they supply, so they can only provide up to 2% of your total income. It doesn't mean, by the way, it doesn't mean reject gifts. Talk no, to a but lawyer it's just and for the, yeah. the qualification yeah. um, as you do your accounting. Yeah. I mean, anything technology-wise? I mean, it seems to me technology could be a solution to, to that. Uh, uh, well, you know, just as um, identifying a couple of years ago, you know, more tools started to become available, platforms where people could create their organization's profile and receive crypto donations. 2023, seeing tools that are enabling, uh, you know, DAF contribution button or, or donate from your DAF, you know, that you would put on your website. So if you're doing everything, you have probably have a donate page with 18 buttons at this point, you know, <laughs> every product, every type of account, every type of money. Um, but, you know, really saw more of that activity happening in 2023, um, whether it's, you know, the vendors and the, the tech providers or nonprofits themselves really trying to break this wall between all of this money, as Jean said, is just kind of sitting there in DAFs. How do we better connect to those folks that aren't maybe necessarily a foundation or asking for applications, but how do we connect there and get more of that money flowing into nonprofits? But then this piece would really complicate that even, even more so where organizations, you know, I think what we see is a lot of especially smaller organizations who would both stand to greatly benefit by more contributions, but would be the ones at risk, as Jean said, because their pool is already so small that one one shift like this could mean they don't pass the test anymore, feeling like, well, it's not even worth it to try to get the funds because then we have this risk. And so yeah. then they're kind of, you know, even setting themselves up to receive fewer donations. And often those are the small organizations doing important, you know, work in their community. Right. And and they're they become vulnerable just because they're trying to be on the cutting edge and accept a, a now of what's now a very common type of gift. You know, so they're they're just trying to broaden their support and they're uh exposing themselves. All right. Thank you, Gene. Excellent. Uh what else? Uh e either of you. I I Well, I, I think we can't do uh, Amy and Gene. We can't do an Amy and Jean outlook um, without acknowledging that here we are in the U.S. entering a big election year. So that comes with everything we've already talked about, right? Different donations, uh, different mis and disinformation, AI issues, are political candidates even really saying these things that I saw on social media? Um, everything we've talked about today unions, <laughs> worker rights, all of this will probably in many ways come up uh, in, in an election year as well. And we know that election years are, are big and hard uh, for the nonprofit sector because so many organizations are part of doing 
work that happens in an election year, even if they are not, you know, par- part of the election, they're trying to make sure that folks locally or regionally or nationally are being elected that care about their issues, that know about their issues, that um, would support the kind of work that they're trying to doing, trying to do, they're educating their community to talk to or advocate for those things with candidates, all, all of those pieces, um, mobilization of communities, impact organizations a lot. And from an attention economy perspective, we know it just gets that much harder for organizations trying to get their message out or fundraise or whatever else in a year where campaigns are ramping up those same asks everywhere. Gene, the presidential election year? Yeah, I, I know you're planning on talking a little bit about this uh, again in an, uh, a later episode, Tony. Yeah, you and I, uh, Amy, welcome to join if you like. Uh, but yeah, we'll we'll talk about electioneering. You know, what's it's not a complete prohibition. It's same same as you and I talked about four years ago. Uh, it's not a total prohibition, but you need to make sure that you're not going over the bounds either. Yeah, that, that would be with you know with lobbying um, with with straight out endorsing or opposing political candidates. Five hundred one c threes are completely bad from that. But issue advocacy gets complicated. But I, I sort of wanted to bring it back also because you know sort of political the political forces and their impact uh, on nonprofits um, ramps up certainly during an election year. But you can already see it getting very very hot this year and. I think the big example that I had that's most recent was kind of been the the resignation um, uh, at Harvard University of their president, um, Claudine Gay. Um, so, you know, the whole kind of, did she say something wrong at the congressional hearing uh, about the Israel-Hamas war and the sort of the implications on and horrifying acts of terrorism and devastating humanitarian crisis in Gaza and and suffering of the Palestinians. There's just so much there. If you say the wrong things or wrong things by people who are the biggest contributors to certain institutions, now those contributors are sort of using their influence and based on their past donations and probably with promises that they will withhold future donations, which is their right, of course. But they are influencing what organizations will do and won't do. And increasingly, that means those with high concentrations of wealth are not just affecting our politics, but they're affecting our nonprofit institutions as well. So nonprofit institutions governed by their board of directors who have fiduciary interests to act in the best interest of the organization are now taking directions from donors who have no fiduciary duties to act in the best interest of the organization and have every intent in some cases to act for their own benefit. So there is this challenge of, yes, money is corrupting politics, but is money corrupting nonprofit organizations as well? Or is money about to corrupt more and more nonprofit organizations? And I think that's become an increasing fear um, of the organization and if I can just sort of um, highlight one publication that that talks a little bit about that is Blueprint, Lucy Bernholz's annual forecast uh, for, for nonprofits and philanthropy and, and social good uh, civil society. Um, uh, she publishes it every year. She's a great thinker uh, on these things. And um, 
I, I think it's important to understand how money will shape our elections during election year, but it will also shape what nonprofits are doing prior to that election year as well. So to, to be somewhat skeptical, if you will, about everything you read out there. I think that's right. And I appreciate the way that you framed that up, Jean, because I also think it's it's not unlike concerns I've seen in a different scale in different settings so many times where especially smaller nonprofits who are really struggling for folks who are willing to take on all of the duties that come with being a board member. And so then the board is the set of largest donors to that organization. That's a very complicated, sticky, tricky uh, combination to create. Uh, for an organization. And it's not that I don't understand how it came to be the case. I'm just saying, then, you know, it's it's precarious. Maybe the wind is right, and, and it can work. But then the wind changes. And it's really difficult if your board are also these major donors, and they feel that their influence is different or, or outsized to staff or or just to the organization as a whole. Yeah, we did an episode on this with uh, Doug White uh, last last show of the uh, of 2023 was based on uh, the uh, President McGill just having resigned at Penn, and uh, we talked about the ethics of this, the the outsized influence of wealthy white men, uh, who most of mo which was what most of what the uh, the uh, most of the opposition at Penn came from folks like Ron Lauder and other billionaires. Uh, and and my, my concern about the, the, the election year is that, Amy, you touched on this just a, a, a bit, that, that it affects everybody's, everybody's donors, volunteers, moods and emotions, you know, throughout the year. And, and it's, it's, it's only amplified by, the the uh, high, highly charged rhetoric, you know, our our divisive politics, and and those moods and emotions of donors and volunteers uh, impact how much they give, where they give, how much time they can spend, how they how feel many about emails the they can open when they've already spent you know fifteen emails unsubscribing from campaigns they never signed yeah. up for, right? Yeah. So yeah, it it uh, it, it impacts their their influence, I mean, their their feelings about the future. So, you know, it's it, by no means is it just what happens in no, what the outcome is in November, but it's all the time leading up to that. And we're not even deep in, I mean, certainly the election has, we're in the election year and in just a matter of weeks, we have uh, Iowa and then New Hampshire very soon after and then South Carolina comes and then it's Super Tuesday. And so, you know, it's, it's only going to get, it's only going to, it's only going to increase, and the the charged rhetoric uh, it just impacts donors and volunteers, you know, uh, and and what they can do and what they feel comfortable doing for the folks in our the organizations in our community. And this is all with the backdrop of a trend of um, decreasing donors, decreasing trust in institutions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so more reliance on really big donors and you know some organizations are targeting their their development and their fundraising departments to target those big donors and less 
at kind of the smaller donors who are decreasing um, in some people's minds in, in importance, yet those smaller donors might represent more of their constituencies and their the beneficiaries that depend upon their services. So we can really just get not only donors exercising influence directly, but indirectly through, you know, how our organizations are operated. I'm going to ask for uh, closing. <laughs> in the law, we call them closing arguments. It doesn't have to, I don't mean an argument. Closing state. Uh, it's supposed to be an opening statement and a closing argument. But we'll, let's just have a closing statement. Gene, uh, uh, you you first, as we started with you, and then we'll let Amy Amy wrap us up. What 2024? What, what do you what do you say? I think 2024 is going to be a year of conflict. Um, there's going to be a lot of conflicting forces. There's going to be a lot of need for bridge building. Um, and I think the bridge building might follow <laughs> the subsequent years. But I see 2024 is just people really getting polarized and picking sides uh, and using whatever influence they have. Some would, some would be individuals using the great power that they might possess because of money, wealth, and connections. But smaller, sort of smaller, uh, those with less wealth may sort of focus their power collectively through unions and stuff. And that's why the workers' movements have been strong. And we will see more associations, which is kind of one of the the, the Tocqueville, if you will, Tony, the academic um, uh, that talked about you know, the greatness of the country because of its uh, associations. And so the associational power of movements, um, I'm, I'm hoping will counter the sort of individual um, wealth in, in shaping how, how our country goes forward. So I think we're going to see a little bit of both those things. I think that's, I, I, I do think that is smart and insightful. I agree. Unfortunately, it wasn't the most positive of outlooks. But, um, you know, I think for me, when I think about 2024, I'm really worried that it's going to be a year of burnout. Um, I think 2023 saw so much energy, so many people pouring so much into calls for change, whether that was, you know, unions and organizing and strikes, but also within their organizations, within these big systemic issues that um, I think collectively as a, as a sector we know about and are trying to advance, but 23 was a year where just so much um, was organized and pushed forward. And I have talked to so many people where it, it sounds like, you know, they maybe they, they went beyond where the E was already lit up on the dashboard and they kept going. And I'm worried for what that means in a year, as Jean said, that is going to have conflict, that is going to ask a lot of us. Um, and I hope that while that's natural and all of us have our own like empty signal that comes on at times, I hope we can come together as a sector so that in community, we can kind of carry the folks who need to rest a while and then take our turns, but but not lose the momentum. I hope we remain civil, humane to each other, calm. We can disagree and, and not be uncivil. They're Amy Sample Ward, CEO of N10, our technology contributor, 
They're at amysampleward.org and at Amy R.S. Ward and Gene Takagi, our legal contributor, principal attorney at NEO, the nonprofit and exempt organizations law group at uh, neolawgroup.com. And he's at GTAC. Amy, Gene, always a pleasure to have the two of you together. Thanks Thank so you much. so much. Thanks, thanks for sharing your thinking. Happy Thank New you, Year to you both. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Next week, it might be performance measurement. It might be team engagement tips. Let's see which guest gets back to Tony first. If you missed any part of this week's show. I do beseech you. Find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by DonorBox. Outdated donation forms blocking your supporters' generosity? DonorBox. Fast, flexible, and friendly fundraising forms for your nonprofit. DonorBox.org. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. I'm your associate producer, Kate Martinetti. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with us next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great. Happy New Year.